Um, I'm happy that you're spending time out in the wild, although not so much today because of the rain, but probably the rest of the week. And it's my favorite thing to do, to be outdoors as you are doing in a, with a contemplative awareness, <clears throat> which, as you know, is a rare thing. Right? We may often spend time outdoors, but we're doing it. We're biking it. We're summiting it. We're checked out on our phone. We're chatting with our mates and not necessarily present for the performance, the display, the beauty. And so it's a beautiful thing to come to retreat and to slow down enough and to cultivate the inner capacity of awareness and presence and sensitivity and receptivity and openness and knowing and all of that that facilitates a deeper connection with and relationship with the outdoors. And I'm imagining you're on day three now, so I'm imagining you're starting to feel, right, the first couple of days pretty, can be pretty sluggish and groggy and hindrancy and busy mind, and then as over time the mind settles, and um, I imagine you're at times beginning to feel more sensitive, more open, more touched right, by the, the slant of the rain, or the sound of crickets at night, or the, the touch of the breeze, or the smells that got elicited with this rain. I spent four hours walking today in the rain, which I love. It's my favorite thing to do. I'm English, so I'm used to walking in the rain. <laughs> it's what we do. If you didn't walk, you waited for the sunshine, you wouldn't walk. So. <laughs> so, And the smells, especially released from the, the cowslips and the uh, Queen Anne's lace, and the very kind of musky smells, and the, and the grasses, crunchy grasses. So... Um, so I'm here just to share some reflections. Um, in similar ways that Wes and Grove are. And uh, as Grove said, I do spend a lot of my time outside, both personally, it's that if I have any time, I go outside, and I also lead many, many retreats a year outside, all over, including in New Mexico, at the ranch, and, um, but all over the place, Mexico, Alaska, and Sierras and whatnot, and here. And um, just to give a little background, so I'm from England. I came over here in the early 90s. I kind of was blown away by the wilderness here. I always always felt like some draw to the wildness of North America and was not disappointed, as I'm sure many of you know. It's, it's the, the land here, the spectacular wilderness. And, uh, you know, in England's pretty. I'm going back to England in a couple of weeks. I'm going to be hiking in the Lake District, which is our one wild area. The mountains are huge. They're two and a half thousand feet high. <laughs> the, the highest mountain in Marin County, this county, is higher than the highest mountain. In, in. Anyhow, it's stunning. It's still beautiful. It, you know, nature's nature. It's wild and beautiful wherever it is. And um, anyhow, I just fell in love and, and, and had the good fortune of meeting Grove and, and spending a lot of time up in the the ranch in northern New Mexico, and and really began to taste what it what you know have some sense deeper connection with the wilderness and the land here, and um, 
began to take more of my practice outdoors, sitting, we do my own self-retreats, solo retreats up in the Sierra. And what I began to see was that a lot of the wisdom and the qualities that we so uh, work so hard to train and cultivate in the meditation hall, presence, awareness, mindfulness, attention, and then the wisdom that arises out of that, connection, interconnection, emptiness, love, etc., that all of that seemed so much more accessible and apparent and, and uh, easy to, to touch into when I was outdoors, when I, when, I went, when I was outdoors with a mindful awareness as you're developing. And so that was sort of revelatory to me. And so I started leading retreats. Uh, as I, after I started teaching in the uh, 2000, I started leading wilderness retreats. Um, in the canyons in the southwest and then in the Sierras and then all over the place. and Because I wanted to share this, what I thought was really profound way to practice. In the beginning, this is like 2003, 2004, you know, it was a little weird. Like it was a little heretical to, to lead retreats outside of these formal centers. You know, people thought it was like, Lesser practice, lesser dharmas, like the, the marine, for the remedial class, you know. <laughs> and, and I sort of was a little sort of some, somewhat self-conscious in the beginning. And, and then, I, then I began to realize, well, wait a minute. The Buddha, you know, was born in a forest, practiced in the forest before he attained the awakening, spent the next 45 years mostly in the forest, in the plains, outdoors mostly. There wasn't nice air-conditioned buildings like this. And then he died in the forest. And so much of his teachings and metaphors is, if you read the text, it's, it's full with, with um, metaphors and similes and analogies to the natural world. And you can't help but be profoundly influenced and, and I'd say grow wise when we have intimate contact with nature. So I began to realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm, this, this practice of being outdoors is a, is a very alive tradition. Every spiritual tradition, and particularly every Buddhist tradition, you know, the yogis in the caves up in the Himalayas in, in, in northern India and in, in Tibet and, and Bhutan and um, the forest monasteries of Southeast Asia and, uh, you know, the, the Chan and Japanese Zen monasteries, you know, they're not mostly in the city. They're mostly in beautiful, wild places for a reason. Right? There's something profound about that contact when we bring a contemplative presence to the elemental nature of uh, the earth that's profound, that's transforming. It's, it's, it's a catalyst. So, and in some ways, I would say and I'm running now teacher trainings, I'm training people to lead this work, and one of the things I'm I'm sort of trying to impart for those trainees is um, that um, in some ways your work is is made easier when you're outdoors. When you're you're in here, I don't know if you've noticed this, and it'd be interesting to do a little poll, but when we're indoors, all that we have is our crazy minds. (laughs) And occasionally the breath, and occasionally we feel our body, and occasionally we're present. But mostly we're just lost in our mind, right? Come on, be honest. How many, like 70, 80%, you know, a lot. And then we go outside, and suddenly there's, there's a whole wealth of sensory 
stimuli that's alluring and calling forth our presence and attention and awareness and mindfulness, right? You, you know, you, you're outside and you listen to the sound of the wind or the birds or the rustling of the trees, right? And say, like, oh, right, that's happening in the present moment. Or I feel the, the breeze kissing my face, touching the skin, or I feel the sunlight on my back, or I feel the bug crawling on my ankle, um, it's alluring our attention. It's calling us very concretely into the present. So there's a lot more competing with the mind for our attention that allows us to more easily rest and abide in the present moment. Which is a good thing, because it's hard to be present, as you've noticed. So, so we want to draw on that supportive quality uh, that's all around us, you know, to embody, to be in our body, to be in our senses. Right? The body's in the present, the senses are in the present. So we use the, the attention to sounds, to sights, to smells, right? a lot of smells today, to the, the, the sensitivity of the skin, the back of the neck. A lot, a lot, we, we, we start to awaken, we start to wake up. You know, we're not, we're not designed to live in these buildings, you know, for 300,000, who knows, but hundreds of thousands of years. And then suddenly in the last couple of hundred years, we live in boxes and we drive in boxes and we work in boxes and we wonder why we're depressed and anxious. You know, like, hello. I don't know about you, but being outside, I'm instantly, you know, what do we feel when we step outside? More spacious? Like, oh, there's more perspective, there's a bigger canopy, there's, there's just more, there's more capacity to hold our experience. We see that there's a world going on outside of our little myopic bubble of me and my. Right? We see that there's seasons, we see that there's migrations, we see just the whole web of life happening, and it helps us get out of that pressure cooker of our own mind and our own rumination. You know, what neuroscientists call the default mode network. We're mostly ruminating and perseverating and, and, and catastrophizing. So we step outside and it's like, oh, fresh air. We feel you know, more oxygen. We feel space. We see the light. And then it just so happens that we're on this planet that happens to be beautiful. Or, or maybe it's not beautiful, but, but it registers in our, in our nervous system as beautiful. Right? The flowers and the sky, and the sunset, and the moonrise, and the, the way the, the wind blows the grasses. And we're touched, and we're, we become more sensitive, and we become more receptive, and we become more tuned. And we're reading this wonderful book that you might be interested in reading if you haven't, called Nature Fix. It's basically summarized all the, all the interesting research that's happening about nature. It's, it's a really hot topic right now. Mindfulness was a hot topic, still is, and then compassion was, and now nature is the next wave of, of, of when neuroscience and, and a lot of scientists are putting their attention. To, to people like us, it's like, duh, nature makes you feel better, duh, it makes you feel more alive, duh. But it helps to have the data. Like, what's actually happening in the brain? There's a lovely phrase that one of these scientists came up with. They call what, ha- what the kind of attention that we develop when we're outside is soft fascination, which is a beautiful facet of mindfulness, soft fascination, right? 
and, and, and the ideal environment is uh, engaging but not demanding. And, and they've done a lot of contrast with how we feel in, in nature versus in an urban setting. Even when we, do, when we go for a walk in a in natural setting or an urban setting, you know, huge difference. Like our, our, our cortisol level is down 12% when we walk in nature. Our creativity goes up by 20%. There's a, these NK uh, white blood cells that are responsible for uh, destroying cancer and other um, viruses, they go up 50% after people have spent three days in nature. Like, there's radical things happen all by themselves without us doing anything. So you're doing wonders for your nervous system just by being here and spending time. No matter what your mind's doing, it's actually happening. Even if you think, God, that was a waste of time, that retreat. I was just, my concentration was hopeless and it sucked and I hated everybody. <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's good. There's good things happening. So... <laughs> Rest assured, right? Uh, so that's the good news. You know, the Buddha said after giving a teaching, he would say, there are trees and there are the roots of trees. Go sit there at the root of a tree and establish mindfulness. He didn't say go to a nice cozy hut with a nice silk you know, bed. He said, no, go to the root of a tree. There's something about sitting with a tree, right? There's some beautiful trees along here. I don't know if you've found them. There's a couple of old, beautiful oaks, wonderful to stand by, to do standing meditation with, and just feel like, oh, this being called oak tree knows how to stand, knows how to be rooted, knows how to be present, knows how to move with the wind. This is, you know, nature is full of metaphors. It's, an, it's, it's like a metaphor machine. Well, it's not, of course, we crave a metaphor, but it, it evokes beautiful metaphors, which is why it's so powerful, because when we get quiet, right, when we develop samadhi, which is what you're doing, develop calm, clarity, stability of the attention, right? This is like working, garden, working gardening the soil of the mind. When that becomes worked, we become sensitive and receptive. And then you see, you know, a leaf falling, or you see rain falling, or you see the, the petals of a California golden poppy fall apart and you have a profound insight into impermanence. You see, oh, the grasses that were also beautiful and green a month ago are now crispy and they've released their seeds and the seeds have gone into the ground and the turkeys are pecking them and we're, we're just seeing the cycle of life, of birth, of fruition and decay and fertilizing the soil for the next season. Right? And we see, oh, this is a cycle of life. There's birth, decay, there's death, there's regeneration. This is the natural way of things. Death is an aberration. Right? So we start to be touched, we start to be moved by these very simple things. Mm-hmm. So partly what I want to speak to tonight is... Um, the insights, the, the Dharma perspective or context of what happens when we practice outside. Because a lot arises, as I said earlier, that is illuminating. You know, and the first insight that's most obvious both in our internal experience but also in nature particularly is the truth of change. Right? The tr- truth of transience. The truth of the fragility of life. You look out the window, right? What do, what do I see? I see changing nature. 
right? There's there's the rising. There's there's the flowers are blooming. The blood that the uh, the what do you call them? The uh, not the dogwoods, but the uh, some tree out here. Um, can't think of that's blossoming now. The buckeye, thank you. The buckeye, yeah, beautiful. Right? And then in a few weeks they'll be decaying and become seeds and into the ground. Right? The top of Mount Everest is marine sandstone, as in it was at the bottom of the sea once upon a time. Right? I mean, you know, as, as solid and as real as these things are, they're also changing and moving. Right? We know this in, in California because it quakes every now and then just to wake us up to it's not as stable as we think it is. Right? All the weather becomes cool and then hot and then cool and then hot. There's nothing in nature that stays static. In these rooms that we create, we create, we're trying to buffer against impermanence. So so we're not living with the aliveness of impermanence because as we keep out change, right? We pick paint that doesn't decay, you know. We go outside and we see everything is arising and passing. And it's the way of things. And that helps us attune to the natural lawfulness of that. It's a beautiful thing when we look at our body and we see the, you know, the, we, we're looking as gnarled and as creviced as the old oak trees and we go, oh, this is the nature of things. Why should I be different? I'm just an aging old tree. And I don't think the, the, the oak tree is ugly because it's aging, it's beautiful. It's gnarled and it's creviced and it's got moss and lichen and, and it's beautiful. Right? We see another the teaching that, that being outside gives us is we see that there's the, 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 we see that the things are perfectly imperfect. Right? I invite you to go look at this beautiful oak tree that in, down this trail. If you go out, you know it's lost one of its massive limbs, which is as big as a tree, which was very sad this year in the big storms. And it's old, and there's moss, and there's all kinds of fluids and leaky things and you know it's just it's wild it's a whole ecosystem but but we see, we see it as beautiful in a certain way in its uniqueness in its idiosyncratic nature can we see ourselves as a display of the natural world doing our own funky thing you know doing our funky human thing we're pretty funky And out of that understanding of, of the changing nature of things is, is we see also the naturalness of, this, of the birth and the, the, the cycle of birth and death. You know? Look out the back window right now. How much do you see that's dying? Like most of it. <laughs> the grasses, the shrubs are both half alive and half decaying. Right? And, there's, and there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of old oak trees that have got southern oak death around here, and so they're now um, devoid of you know, life force, but they're beautiful. And it's a natural part of the cycle. Or we come across bones. You know, Nature's full of dead and dying things. It is, this is the nature. Right? You know, the Dharma is called, is that the, the translation of Dharma is natural law. When we come outside, we, we come closer to the natural law of things. We see it's not a problem or not wrong, it's just the way of things. So it's sort of, it's sobering, but also maybe it's, it's something in my system relaxes, like, oh yeah, it's not, it's not, a, mis- it's not a medical mistake that the grasses are go turning brown, that's, that's their nature. 
it's not a mistake that my hair is going gray. It's, it's nature. <laughs> you know, I remember I was teaching a, one of my favorite retreats that I used to lead was a kayaking meditation retreat up in Alaska. And we would go during the, the height of the uh, salmon run. And, and um, you know, we were in Inside Passage. We dropped off in a boat plane in the middle of nowhere. And the whole sea at this, in July, this particular time, this particular place, was a sea of jumping salmon. 55 million salmon were returning to their spawning grounds. It's, and if anybody been there to see that? It's just phenomenal. This, and it's, and you see, you're aware, if you think about it, it's this huge movement. It's this huge movement of death, of life and death. 55 million salmon are going to their spawning grounds to die and also to create life. It's so utterly profound. You know, and of course, the whole web of life comes down for that migration. The, the, the bald eagle hatchlings are out and the humpbacks, are, well, the humpbacks don't eat the salmon, but the bears are coming down from the high country. It's beautiful, profound. So I invite you to turn your attention when you're out sitting and walking or just having a cup of tea. Notice the changing nature of things. Notice how things are both being emerging, the blossoms, the new, the new saplings, and also things are decaying. And this too will happen to us. One of the things I enjoy reflecting on when I'm outside is the sense of time. Right? We live very stuck in a linear clock time. When we go outside, the, the, the trees aren't responding to hours and minutes. It's a different quality. We can feel into both. We can feel into the timeless quality of things. And there's the cycles and the seasons, but there's a different quality of time that can take us out of a sense of scarcity. Anybody feel like they've got not, not got enough time in life? Not enough time to meditate, not enough time to get enlightened, not enough time to who knows what. So another teaching that arises quite effortlessly, uh, sometimes this takes a little more reflection, but I think it's, it's worthy of reflection, but often it doesn't require reflection because it's very obvious, is our intimate, interconnected nature. We like to think that we're sort of you know, somewhat separate, independent beings, which we are on one level, but another level, we're intimately affected, connected to much bigger systems. Right? Try holding your breath. Try holding the air element out for a few minutes. You'll see how dependent we are on the air element. Try not drinking water for a day. You'll see how intimately we're, in, we're part of the hydrological cycle. One of the things I love teaching about some like at the ranch uh, the Grove founded, or when I'm camping out by a stream, is when you drink from a, from a single water source, in the same way that we're drinking from a, one or two water sources here, we're mostly drinking from Mount Tam Watershed um, and from the Eel River. That's where Marin gets its water from. But let's say it's coming, let's say, let's say this, this county is probably getting all of its water from um, Kent Lake, which is the nearest reservoir to here. We're here for a week, the body's 70% water or more. We drink many liters of water a day. 
over the course of the week, you are more that reservoir than anything else. (laughs) And when you come by a stream and you drink from the stream, you become more the stream than anything else. And that's not just a nice idea, that's the reality. We are skin-bound streams, lakes, reservoirs, waters, oceans. And that's a reality. So when you're drinking the water, have some awareness. This came from the rain on the mountain, the Mount Mount Tam, which you can sometimes see over there. We're intimately connected. When the sun goes in, we feel the absence of the fire element. And then just noticing how intimately your mood and mind is related to the environment. You're sitting up there in the beautiful meadow and suddenly the, the house finches start singing and just you feel this lightness and joy and delight to the beautiful birdsong. Whereas before you may be feeling tight and anxious or you, f- you listen to the fluttering of the wind or you, know, you see a, a little lizard comes and lands on your, on your knee. Right? It's like, oh... Oh, he's, he thinks I'm part of the, the meadow. That's how cool is that? I'm, I'm really part of the, the ecosystem here. You know, or the ants or the, whatever else wants to crawl on you. Another very beautiful thing to reflect on and powerful and deep is the understanding, and this comes out of partly our understanding of our interconnected nature, is having some reflection around the sense of self. And there's a particular way that I like to encourage people to, to look at that. So, particularly when you're on your own, you know, maybe you're sitting down the trails here or you're up in the, up in the hills. Or, you know, there are times when we're out in nature, and there's particularly when there's no one around, and we're surrounded by things that aren't full of themselves, that aren't self-referencing. The tree's not going, hey, look at me, I'm the biggest oak. No, it's just being a tree. And the deer's not going, hey, I've got the best spots. It's just deering, right? Endearing, probably. Um, and uh, anyhow, so, you know, there are times I'm sure you've, you've, you're sitting on a bench, you're just with the trees or the grasses or the birdsong or the morning air, and everything gets quiet. And you're not full of worries and preoccupations about yourself and your stories and your dramas. And you're just quiet. You're just being, just in presence, which itself feels very delicious. It's a naturalness, what, what the Buddha Dasa called natural samadhi, natural awareness that comes when we're in nature. And in those moments, at times, you may reflect or you may observe that the sense of self, which is often so tight and rigid and bound and, and a, th- you know, a thing, sort of softens. Maybe you feel a little more expansive or spacious or relaxed or dissolved or happy. And then maybe you hear a bell and you go, oh, shit, I'm late for the meditation. Oh, no. <laughs> They're going to notice. Oh, God, I'm always late. Oh, God, I'm always Why am I so late? Why am I going to watch? And this whole story of self comes. You know, and it's very constricted and tight. Very different than an open, spacious, relaxed sense of self or selflessness. And then you realize, oh, that's the other retreat spell. Oh, relax, relax, relax. <laughs> oh, it's good. It's all good. And, you, and so you watch that the sense of self is like an accordion, right? It comes really tight when you think about your problems and your, your lack of money or whatever relationship woes. And then when you're actually just settling at ease in the present moment, particularly outdoors, it tends to relax, soften, open, spacious. Ah, life's okay. This moment, okay. 
So be aware of this fluid nature of self. There's a wonderful poem by Chinese poet Li Po, and think about this maybe if you're sitting on the mountain. He says, The birds have vanished into the sky, and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. The birds have vanished into the sky. The last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. As in that sense of, you know, he disappears into just being with what's here. We sit together, the turkeys and me, until only the turquoise remain. (laughs) And maybe a little bit of giggling too, because they're so wacky. You know, we sit together, the grasses and me, until only the grasses remain. This is very available. This is not, it may sound esoteric, but it's very available, practical, accessible. We just have to, you know, it helps to cultivate some awareness, some, you know, letting down the restless thoughts. And then my last point, and then we'll open it up, my last point, um, you know, some of the key things I think arise in nature practice is love. I mean, there's actually a whole bunch of other things I haven't talked about, but I'm going to narrow it down, is, is the heart opens. Right? Has anybody's heart opened these last few days? Been touched by some beautiful thing, mosses, grasses, birds? Are the swallows back here nesting yet? Building their nest? No, the swallows come here every year. Always breaks my heart open. They nest right above the toilets, the, the bathrooms. <laughs> because, and I know why now, you know, I, I thought it's crazy. That's the busiest place in the whole building. They they nest there because it's safe from predators. Right? I came up one one evening, and the, you know, at some point they build a nest, and then you see the little chicklets, you know, waiting for mama, and they're incredibly vulnerable and cold, and you know, wanting food, and and it's just you know, it breaks your heart. And one night I came up at midnight, and. Uh, the, we have great horned owls here sometimes, and the great horned owl was sitting on the opposite, the opposite side, looking at the nest, and the parents were freaking out, you know, and that's why they nest it because it's safe. Right? So, um, so one of the things that happens as we get quieter and as we spend more time is the heart is touched, is moved by beauty, by awe, by love, by tenderness by vulnerability, by um, the tremendous sadness and grief that we're destroying this gorgeous, beautiful, rare, sacred planet. The heart opens and and feels more of that. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, the the motto or the the sort of the foundation for the work that I do, my nature work, is we protect what we love. We protect what we love. If we don't love something, we're not going to care that much about it. If we don't have any visceral, intimate contact with it, we're not going to have the seeds from which love arises. So the more we spend time outside, what happens? We fall in love. And what do we do with those we love? We want to take care of them. We want to protect them. We want to steward them. That's what I hope all happens for you here, is you fall madly in love with the planet and this earth and this land and yourselves and each other and and you want to be more actively guardians of this beautiful earth that we have. Because Lord knows we need that.
So, and then, you know, of course, we have this beautiful thing called silence, right? which is, I think, key to this work, right? The silence allows us to feel the silence of nature. This feels the stillness of the land. We can feel the silence even in the sound. Sometimes the frogs or the crickets are, uh, you know, cricketing and, 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 and the stillness even within the sound. And the stillness and the silence is a doorway to, to mystery, to sense of the sacred, to something that we can't put our finger on. Right? We, we, we're, but we're touched by it. And, and out of that comes awe, comes reverence. I once went to the Grand The first time I went to the Grand Canyon, I was 93, and I had a little camper van, drove across the country, drove up at 6 a.m. to the Canyon Ridge. And I was like, that's why Americans invented the word awesome. Because <laughs> there's no other word. It's like... Right? But you can have that same experience looking at a flower. You know, it's awesome beauty. So... So this is some reflections, is that? I don't know if that's, I'm not going to go on, but I think that's maybe enough words. Um, uh, you know, um, you know the, the main, so that just to make it a little practical, the main instruction I give when I'm teaching is come out of your head, into your body, and into your senses. 500 times a day, right? You'll notice you're walking up the hill to the meditation space, and you're just completely checked out. You go, wait a minute, oh, there's a lizard down there, and there's ants on the ground, and there's grasses, over, and the smells, and oh, look at that, it's a coyote bush, and oh, look at that, there's a hawk flying. So just coming back over and over into the body, into the senses, into the present moment. And then let nature do a lot of the work. Just give yourself to it. Easier said than done, I know. (laughs) This is all very easy to say, much harder to do. Um, But it's really kind of getting out of our own way. So, do you you share? Yeah, Yeah, sure, yeah. Give me an easy one first, because he's going to give me a hard one. No, it'll be easy. Do you think that uh, if people are go out into nature without sort of all the pointing out you do, of, you know, and how to sort of come into the body and into the senses and how to experience this, that people come to it on their own with just by nature being the teacher? I, I think so. It's just slower. You know, I think, I think what this practice, what mindfulness practice does is it optimizes whatever we do. You know, I, I know there's people who go fly fishing and, you know, and there's many, many beautiful ways to go out into, the, into nature, hike, backpacking, camping, fly fishing, whatever. But if our mind isn't trained, as you know, even if you, your mind is relatively trained and you know most of the time it's not here, right? Here's this amazing performance called Nature and we're just, what's for lunch? No, I hope someone's not in my walking spot. No, 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 why didn't I bring my nice cushion? No, no, no. You know, and it's like we missed 95% of... So I think, 
I think what this does is it speeds up that capacity to really make the most of it. You know, um, I mean, I'm, I I love to interview fishermen because I think they spend all day just staring at the lake, and I'm wondering what's going on in their minds. Are they really like in this very beautiful Zen place, or are they just kind of you know, who knows where they are? So, but I think you know, with meditation, we get the chance to train our mind to optimize it, so it's really can make use of this you know this moment. Mm-hmm. That's my sense. So, you know, many paths. Meditation is just one, but I think it's a really expedient path to optimizing that. Yes? Can you tell us about the kayaking meditation trip? So, yeah, so, you know, many ways to be outdoors, and and one is I've led kayak, I do lead kayaking trips right now, they're in Baja. And, um, What's interesting about that form is, you know, this is, this is a more sedentary form. And then there's other ways, like some of my retreats are hiking, some of them are kayaking, some of them have been rafting. Um, and they're just different ways to be interacting with the elements. And so that then the paddling becomes the meditation. You know, for me, the, the paddle stroke is like the breath. It's the anchor, or it's like the walking practice. And then, you, and then you're out in the sea and you've got that kind of beauty. And there's something also very powerful about being on the water element that's immediately calming, relaxing, opening, and, um, um, you know, so it's, it's inter- for, it's, for me it's interesting to see how different landscapes af- af- impact our being and our practice. Right? So, f- so when I'm in Baja, it's very wild. It's harsh, it's hot, it's desert. And, but it's stunning, right? And it's harsh beauty, right? It's very wild and it's unforgiving and it's very elemental. There's a lot of death around, there's a lot of bones and skeletons and, and, and it's beautiful, right? And then, you know, it's also beautiful to, you know, like go to Alaska where it's always raining. Like it's like today, like today would be a typical Alaskan day, soft, drizzly rain and... Um, and you, you get to feel the fecund lushness of the of the earth, you know, and that's also beautiful. So, um, yeah, it's good to it's good to play with this practice in different environments. Yeah, yeah. So practically, the object of meditation is the activity and nature. I was trying to imagine you loving meditation. So when you're hiking, it's you know it's the hiking, it's the nature. You're not sitting, setting aside time, and, or perhaps you're doing. I don't know what is it practically. What's the practice? Well, I mean, the the sitting practice for me is always really foundational. So whatever I'm doing, whether it's a kayaking retreat or a hiking retreat, there's a lot of sitting. You know, there's a few sittings in the morning. Like in, in Baja, we get up at dawn, we meditate, we do qigong, we meditate, then we have breakfast. Right? It's a, it's a very, you know, it's a, that's like the foundation for the day. And then we meditate again, and then we paddle. Right? So it's very grounded in the practice. Because for me, the, you, you know, you can be outdoors in the wild, and that's fine. But I find that um, it's really helpful, just as you're doing here. Like you might go for a walk, and you're very open. And then it's really powerful to come back into the body and just be, just be with the breath 
and just be with the inner the inner landscape and you allow the and, and that has its own richness and what I think of the sitting practice is um, you're really growing the muscle of awareness so then when you open your eyes when you walk when you're sipping tea or you're looking at the night sky then the, the illumination comes so the the sitting is where you do the work and it may not be where you have the most seemingly pleasant experience, but it's supporting the growing growth of awareness. So in in all the retreats I do, the sitting is fundamental and that that becomes the, you're on the mat, that's you doing your work. And then there's lots of other times when you're not in that such focused place, but you're bringing that quality of presence as you do here with the walking practice, with the standing practice, with walking up and down the hill, with your yoga job, Right, the, the hopefully the even though it might seem like nothing much is happening in your sit, you know maybe you maybe you had the most terrible sit in your life and you're walking down the hill to dinner and and you feel incredibly clear and you go what the hell happened I had a terrible sit it doesn't matter it's 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 there's something much bigger happening above and beyond the details of the practice sit so it's for me it's always an oscillation I always like that. Opening and then the inner, the outer and the inner. It's a, it's a very rich, you know, symphony. Yeah. I'm in working on developing a program for environmental ed, and the, the kids go in a circle, and each one has a label: soil, water, um, sun, plant, animal, human. And then as they toss the ball, they say. Uh, how I'm dependent on you, and then mm. when they catch, they say, and I'm dependent on you in this way, mm. and then they pass. Beautiful. And it continues on like that, and I just really see the importance of that interconnectedness mm. teaching, kind of what you touched on also, mm-hmm. and have come to the same conclusion that it fits in really well with this mm-hmm. spiritual teaching, but also that um, all spiritual teachings kind of have a responsibility to incorporate this in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the game. It's a great game. I want I want to Yeah, I'm trying to do more like kid friendly games like that. Yeah. Because I think a lot of um, as consumers we don't connect the dots with interconnectedness right. and right. for instance, like the palm oil plantations, thirty orangutans die in a day. Mm. Just other, there's lots of other, you know, things happening like that. For sure. Do you touch on that in your classes about how we can? Yeah. Well, I, 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 you know, particularly, you know, as you're just feeling into, I, you can't do this work without feeling the grief of what's happening to the planet, right? If you fall in love, you're going to feel the heartbreak. Right? You're going to feel the web of life that we've created and also messed with and having a very detrimental impact. And um, so it is important, for sure, I bring that in to, to help people see that we have responsibility and we have impact and we have some relative power and um, and there's something powerful about when we're outside that we actually get to viscerally experience that 
that it actually can sometimes come home a lot deeper, so we're much more aware of our actions as consumers or as you know whatever we do with our you know, with our lives. Huh? As voters, yeah, or as investors, or as activists, or as um, so, yeah, very important that we bring that dimension in. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for your work. Yeah. In the circle game, they have animals and then humans. Yeah. And I just do that not because I think that humans aren't animals, but because <laughs> yeah. of conceptualizing <laughs> being separate in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Intellect and whatnot. Yeah. I wonder if children, I wonder if that would be traumatic to, if they started to be, know that they're animals. <laughs> 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 it's a good wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Earlier uh, this evening, Mark, we were talking about the discovery that's just been announced in the last couple of days. In northern Morocco and Africa, they've discovered uh, remains of sapiens, of Homo sapiens, that date back now 350,000 years. It almost doubles what science had thought was the, uh, how long we've been around. And just 150,000 years, and we broke out of Africa 70,000 years ago, um, I mean, we've been outside a long time. <laughs> yeah, a long time, yeah. yeah. This is not something we have to, like, uh, create within ourselves. It's there. Right, I mean, right. Literally hundreds of thousands of years, every night we lay down in the ground and to sleep, and the next morning we woke up in the outdoors. I mean, it's all there in our DNA. Totally. It blows my mind when I contemplate just the vastness of the time that uh, we, who as a species, consider ourselves so unique. Yeah, another thing that's interesting about the, some of the science research <clears throat> is this phenomenon called the attention restoration network in the brain. And it's speaking to what you're, you're pointing to, which is when we're in urban environments, the brain has not had hundreds of thousands of years to understand what a moving bus is, <laughs> right? It's had 
you know, less than, I don't know, 50, 75 years or something. So when we're in urban environments, our brain is working over time to understand and assimilate all the stimuli, which is very stressful and, and, and tiring. And when we come out into nature, our brain relaxes. That's why it's called attention restoration theory, because in nature, the brain can it relaxes. I forget what percentage it is, but it's it's much less output to understand and assess the environment because it's familiar. It, it's in the DNA. It knows what a tree is. It doesn't have to kind of you know do a lot of work around that. And so, um, so the so the so the, um, the prefrontal cortex relaxes. The healthier side of the default mode network comes online, which is more creativity, more um, associative um, connectivity. And it's why a lot of the times we feel more creative. I mean, for myself, when I take a walk, which is most mornings. I get my best ideas, most creative ideas, always in that time. Not at my desk, not in my computer, not trying to think through a problem, but when I'm just relaxing, walking outside. Because it, the, the, the spaciousness of the environment allows the brain to be more optimal. So, and I think that's true in our, in our meditation practice, too. Yeah. So. I, think it, I think it's really... Uh, informative to reflect on how old we are and how uh, how little time we've been waking up like we're waking up here now. How, how brief a time it's been since the Buddha and since we really started self-reflection uh, you know a couple thousand years is not much in biological time. Mm-hmm. It's sort of for, it's, it's very forgiving to reflect on it that way. You realize that what you're working with here is brain that's been designed actually for you know thousands of years of hunter gatherers, small tribes, mm-hmm. hunter gatherers, mm-hmm. survival, yeah. and that explains our addiction to shopping. You know, <laughs> it's out there. You go get it, uh-huh. <laughs> and hoarding, and. St- and storage units. Right. <laughs> right. And, and working ourselves, too. There's yeah. science now that uh, as foragers, hunters and gatherers for these hundreds of thousands of years, when we came across a fig tree that, had, that was like candy sweet, we'd clean it off. Mm-hmm. We'd gorge ourselves. Mm-hmm. Because if we didn't, whatever critter was around, we're going to do it. Uh-huh. And that accounts for our, our compulsivity uh-huh. around uh-huh. gorging. Uh-huh. And because that's how we live for such a long time. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. If it's there, i got to eat it. Yeah. Does that count for chocolate too? Because I have a yeah. chocolate gorging. <laughs> I was wondering what... Even alfalfa soup? <laughs> <laughs> was that for dinner? <laughs> And any, uh, anything else before we wrap up? Yeah, I just have a, a quick comment and then a question. Yeah. Um, so regarding the attention restoration theory, yeah. I did a uh, study in a psychology lab, and huh? um, so I used four types of 
out that people's attention could be restored just by viewing a screen. Yes. Yes. And so I had like a, a you know, when they put the camera on top of the taxi cab that drive through New York. Mm -hmm. I had that and that. Mm -hmm. So people, their attention gets restored just through a digital representation. Yes. Yes. Yes, even if even a photograph. Most of these studies are actually done with photographs, which massively diminish you know the, the difference between looking at nature and actually being in nature. With the whole kinesthetic embodied, you know, it's so they're only actually getting a slice, a snapshot, and yet still the data is really conclusive of how much of the brain relaxes. Great, you're doing that study. That's cool. Yeah. 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 So I guess I'm viewing it as a negative thing that I'm getting distracted. Uh -huh. I watched a little mouse for like 15 minutes when I was uh -huh. just doing the walking meditation. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't know, I'm just kind of in awe because, you know, it's positive been designed by billions of years of evolution to kind of shell the dirt away. Right. And um, that just kind of seems like your gig. So how do you reconcile getting distracted and, and doing meditation with nature? Yeah. 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 I think it. You know, it, it, a couple of things. One, it comes down to partly to come down to intention. Like, what's the intention? Like, say you got a period of practice. Like, okay, I'm going to do walking meditation. And of course, there's a lot of things calling our attention. Right, the bird song and the wind and the trees and the view and the mice and and so you know, there's always a choice point. You could go, ah, oh, it's kind of cool mouse, but I'm actually doing walking meditation. I'm just going to, you know, just give myself to it, and then maybe if it's still there at the end, I'll go check it out. Or you go, well, you know, ultimately, we, you know, the practice is about being aware of what's happening. And if it's the mouse, well, I mean, I can always walk later, and I'm going to just give my attention to the mouse, and just be fully present to the mouse, you know, and let your curiosity be there. You know, watch your mind kind of like, well, if I had claws like this, I wonder if rats have claws, you know, and then you watch the papancha proliferating mind, and just come back to the experience. And then when you're done, you just go back to walking. And so in that way, nothing needs to be a distraction. In the same way that you might hear, you know, a hooting owl. And you go, oh, wow, owls, we don't have those, that particular song in Oklahoma. Why do we have, you know, just watch the mind. Okay, just come back to, okay, hearing, hearing, beautiful, hearing, heart opening, hearing, hearing, walking, walking, right? So, you know, so, and then, you know, maybe at other times when, the, you know, between sit and walks, you know, the, during the breaks or something, you know, let yourself be a little more, Curious and you know, exploring the, the fauna and the flora. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we're just simply being, you know, we have these formal practices, sitting, walking, standing, and all that. And there's a place for, for mostly giving oneself to that. And, but ultimately, we're simply being aware, being present to our inner and outer landscape. That's ultimately what's important. And the object is less is secondary to the quality of attention that we're giving, whatever it is we're giving. You know, because you could spend the whole time walking going, what was that mouse? Is that mouse still there? What was that mouse? Is that mouse still there? You know, it's just like, just watch the mouse. Like, just enjoy the mouse for a few minutes and then you back to walking. You're like... <laughs> so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and just sweet to have that intimacy, right? How often do we give ourselves the time to stop and really... Be with a, you know, like a creature. Be with another mammal. You know, it's very sweet. There's a, there's a, there's a gopher. Uh, is it a gopher? It might be a mouse. I'm not sure. Um, I just see a, a, a between, what's the, uh, the third building. So uh, what's that building? 
Mudita. There's a little, have you seen him? Little mouse, little gopher comes up. Yeah, and he has a little hole there and he just comes up, nibbles the grass, goes back in. It's very adorable. Ah! <laughs> All right. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, it's a whole little ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. So, no, it's just very sweet to have it. You know, it's a joy to be on retreat and have the luxury of time to just hang out with a mouse and, and, and let that touch you, you know, let yourself really be, feel that. It's, you know, it's, it's very sweet. You know? That's, that's the joy that comes out of awareness. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for your kind attention. Very nice to be with you. Thank you yes. for yes. wonderful. Yes. Mention your book, please. Oh, yeah. So uh, I wrote a book called um, Awake in the Wild. And it is, uh, it's in the bookstore, I'm sure. It's a, and the subtitle is Mindfulness in Nature as a Path of Self-Discovery. And it has like 40 meditations about nature practice in there. So if you like this kind of retreat, it's a really great manual to, um, to, uh, you know, to work with, very practical. And I just had another book come out called Make Peace With Your Mind, which is about the inner critic. But the, the Awaken the Wild book I think you really enjoy. And I have a website with that same name. And I'll, maybe I'll leave some stuff out, some literature out for you guys if you're interested. Yeah, and... Uh, Come on a nature retreat sometime. Another one. <laughs> okay. Thank you, yes, thanks. So, we have a walking period. What? 20 minutes? Yeah, it's 8.30.